Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a gynecologist discusses the surgery that may prevent ovarian cancer in women at high risk for the disease. A number of things have been tried in the realm of screening, prevention, or risk reduction using surgery. And of those, the most effective method has been to remove the ovaries and fallopian tubes. A chemistry professor tells how he's developing a diabetes drug without side effects. As soon as we did that, we saw no nausea, no vomiting, no weight loss, but nice maintained glycemic control. And a researcher explains his work on a rare condition called graft-versus-host disease, which can threaten people who undergo transplants. Graft-versus-host disease is one of the high rate of mortality after cancer. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a chemistry professor shares how he's developing a diabetes drug without side effects. Then, a researcher explains his work on a condition that can affect people who undergo transplants. But first, a gynecologist tells about a study of how to prevent ovarian cancer in women at high genetic risk for the disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Gynecologic oncology researchers are testing a surgery that may help women who have a high genetic risk for developing ovarian cancer. Here to tell about this study is Dr. Rinki Agarwal. She's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate and also the medical director of the Upstate Cancer Center's gynecologic oncology program. Thank you for your time, Dr. Agarwal. Thank you for having me, Amber. Besides that, I also want to mention that I am the director for the genetics program uh, for the Upstate Cancer Center, and I serve in that capacity as a board-certified geneticist. So this study that we are here to talk about and focus on is very near and dear to me from both avenues of my training. It sounds like it ties together nicely because the study focuses on women who know they are at an increased risk for ovarian cancer. Can you explain how a woman would know what her risk is? So women may come to get this information through multiple streams. Hopefully the way it would work for a majority of women at risk would be because they have familial risk that was identified and that information was shared by family members with patients at risk, and they go through testing. The other way that women find out about the risk is because they've had cancer themselves, either breast cancer or ovarian cancer, and they are going through the process of evaluating the reason for getting the cancer and go through testing. And that's the other significant way. In our practice, we see a very large number of patients who are coming to us for evaluation on the genetic side of my practice because of a strong family history, and we evaluate them, and then we end up identifying patients who are at risk, and then they are referred to the different specialties that would address those risks and help them manage that, understand the risk and manage it from there. Let me ask you about the, which family members. So are we talking about a mother or a sister or an aunt or a cousin who had ovarian cancer? Is that it or is it just your parents? So really it can come from either side of the family. It can be maternal or paternal risk or through those lineages. And you can have people who have known risk in siblings, either parent or in extended family, aunts, uncles, or cousins. And there is enough general awareness of the relationship between the genetic predisposition genes and the cancer risk to flag those for most practitioners so that patients will get that information. And then we encourage them to share it with family members. Now, why does this study look at surgery as a potential solution? So to understand that, I would like for us to go back to some of the background 
and say why is this study necessary and why is it surgery that's part of the study? Okay. So where we are right now is essentially about 20 years of uh, knowledge synthesized uh, into development of this study. So on one side, I'm going to talk about understanding ovarian cancer risk. And in that, with the identification of major risk factor genes, such as the BRCA1 and 2 genes, where mutations would give people increased risk, we've known that from going through the mid-90s. And that has led to development of strategies for managing risk. And a number of things have been tried in the realm of screening, prevention, or risk reduction using surgery. And of those, the most effective method has been to remove the ovaries and fallopian tubes. And people have studied that and the literature supports that there is tremendous value and a significant reduction in risk when you do the surgical interventions, whereas we're not great at screening and prevention using medical modalities. Okay, so that's on one end. Then as we've gone on, biological assessments of the precursors for ovarian cancer going back decades have not really shown us a true precursor lesion in the ovary as you see in multiple other cancers. You can take examples of breast or colon cancer and you see precursor lesions. We never really saw those in the ovary. And then in the last decade, decade and a half or so, we found that there are precursor lesions that are present in the fallopian tubes so the, that's led to the belief that the genesis may not be in the ovary at all, but may be in the fallopian tubes to start with. So that now brings us to a functional understanding of what these organs are doing, where you can draw on our knowledge of the different organs. We're talking about two different things here. The fallopian tube, which is essentially connecting the uterus to the ovary and allowing for transit of egg and sperm and fertilization within the fallopian tube. But beyond that, it doesn't really have functions beyond fertility preservation. It doesn't have functions for hormonal activity for the female. On the other hand, the ovaries produce eggs, but they also produce hormones. And there, what we know now from drawing on large studies of things like the Women's Health Initiative that we've had now available to us for review for the last 20 years or so, that the hormones uh, coming from the ovaries are significantly impactful in preserving health for women. And that's pretty much for every body system uh, you can think of. In the short term, that can be things like mood, sleep, disturbances, uh, sexual function, and in the long term, it can range from cholesterol management, heart disease, cognitive function, bone health, and other impacts. So you are coming to the realization that the risk source may be the fallopian tube. And the ovary is potentially uh, a source, but may just be a bystander that gets involved in the cancer process. And then the ovary has significant functional benefit for the individual and you're giving up on that when you take the ovaries out. If you were able to let a woman keep her ovaries, you would like that as long as you can assure her that her risk for ovarian cancer is removed by taking the fallopian tubes out. Exactly. So you're basically taking all of this functional information, the pathologic information that we've gained over time to say we have risk, we have the source of risk, we have benefit of this other organ, can we truly preserve it or time its removal such that you get most of the benefit before it's surgically removed. And that brings us to the study, the salpingo-oophorectomy to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer study. Let me ask you before we get into that, sure. if we think that most ovarian cancers start in the fallopian tubes, will we stop calling it ovarian cancer? It depends on what kind of philosophy you have. We're not going to walk away from calling it ovarian cancer for a long time. Uh, a lot of the studies that we know about treatment of the disease, literature is all going to call it ovarian cancer. 
in the end, there is significant involvement of the uh, ovaries with the uh, disease, whether it's arising from the fallopian tube or the ovary. And we can't completely eliminate the ovary as a primary source of the cancer. So in a purest sort of a way, I would say that, yes, we may at some point get to a point where we can differentiate and call them for what they are based on their genesis. So we may have fallopian tube cancers that are a major category and ovary cancer is a minor category rather than the reverse, which is as it exists right now. They are similar enough in our understanding of how they uh, behave that for the purposes of our current treatment and discussions, they are considered the same. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Rinki Agarwal about a study that is looking for women at high genetic risk for developing ovarian cancer. So what can you tell us about this trial? I know it's sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. What is it set up to do? In short, it's called SOROC, which stands for salpingo-oophorectomy to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. And it is a study that is available currently for enrollment at Upstate. And it's sponsored by NRG Oncology, which is part of the National Cancer Institute Community Oncology Research Program. So it's a national study to evaluate the strategy for managing risk in patients who have an identified mutation in a BRCA1 gene for future development of ovarian cancer. So how many women are you looking for and what are their ages? For the study nationally, they're looking to enroll just under 2,300 women between the ages of 35 to 50. And they would be looking to have certain things to include patients in the study. They have to have a known mutation in the BRCA1 gene, and they still have their fallopian tubes. And is there anything that would disqualify someone from participating? Well, people who already have ovarian or fallopian tube cancer as the start of where they gathered this information would not be candidates uh, for this study. But pretty much everybody else, and if the fallopian tubes have already been removed as part of some prior surgical process, those patients would be excluded. But otherwise, everybody else is a candidate for it. I want to let listeners know that they can call a local number to the Upstate Cancer Center to learn more about this trial at 315-464-8200. And if they have friends in other parts of the country, the National Cancer Information Center at 1-800-4-CANCER, that's 1-800-422-6237, can also provide information. Can you walk us through what happens when someone joins the trial? Is this person going to meet with you or another doctor to help decide which surgery she'll have? Absolutely. All four gynecologic oncologists in our practice are able to see patients and enroll them in the trial. So they could certainly see me or one of the other physicians in the practice. And what would happen is that they would have an initial interview. They can come in with this information or we're pretty much screening every patient that comes through that may be eligible for this trial, to be considered for the trial, they're given information and given some time to think about it. Now, the time to think about it is something that I encourage patients to do in the context of this particular scenario. They have a BRCA1 mutation, they're trying to manage the risk of ovarian cancer, and we're talking about risk management. So that time to think about the study is something that I would consider a standard of care anyways. And once they've gone through the information and considered it, it's an option for them to proceed with enrolling for the trial. And then within the trial, it is patient choice on whether or not they would be in the arm of doing the current standard, which is to remove both tubes and ovaries after the age of 35, or if they were to choose the salpingectomy arm with a subsequent delayed oophorectomy at a later point after the age of uh, 40 to 45. So those would be the two arms uh, that the patient would be enrolled in, but it would be patient choice. Does the trial pay for the surgery or does the woman's health insurance cover the surgery? 
So the uh, trial's intent is to collect information. The uh, billing for the service is done through insurance. And the burden for the patient in terms of participating in the trial is predominantly that they are answering questions. They're allowing the trial to access their medical records and they're allowing them to store a sample of blood for any biomarkers that we may find have utility uh, for patients in the future. So those things would be covered by the trial, the maintenance of those records that they've collected, but the study would not cover the surgeries. What is the follow-up like? Are there visits after the surgery? There are visits after the surgery that are also considered standard of care, and that would be uh, the points where we would assess for outcomes. How are they doing by way of quality of life preservation and the future risk of cancer? And that's all collected as part of standard of care, but would also be then given to the trial as long as the patient consents, continues to consent to do so. How would you counsel women who join this study to be on the lookout for signs or symptoms of ovarian cancer after they've had the surgery? So, for lack of a better description, the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer are relatively subtle, and it has been in the media called a silent disease. I do not believe that it's silent. It's more that you have to be aware because there is such subtlety to the signs and symptoms that you can frequently attribute those symptoms to other diseases before you think of ovarian cancer as the uh, potential problem in a majority of those instances. So first, uh, to specify that there are some characteristics and symptoms that patients will have if they have the disease. And then for what those symptoms may be, frequently more abdominal symptoms than symptoms uh, elsewhere in the body. And those can range from bloating, which we would define as just a sense of being very full or getting full too quickly. They find that they can't eat as much, but their abdomen or the belly feels very full. Abdominal pain or pressure, change in how they're moving their bowels, and then other range of symptoms can be things like shortness of breath, loss of weight, and these are persistent. Anything that's lasting over a couple of weeks is something that would suggest that it requires further evaluation. And they can stem from numerous other potential differential diagnoses, but we, in this context for this particular discussion, we're talking about patients who are at identified increased risk of ovarian cancer, so for them to be thinking about this as a higher potential differential diagnosis would be important. What would you say are the benefits of a woman participating in a trial like this? So the benefit may not be evident to us for a few years until these trial results are available to us. But the idea of the study is that with the counseling and with all of the information provided, the patients who choose something like the salpingectomy arm by their own choice are not committed to that alone. They can cross over to the salpingo-oophorectomy arm at any point. And even if they were to stay with the salpingectomy arm, have a planned oophorectomy sometime in the future. We don't know what the answer of the ultimate findings of the trial is, but the trial has been carefully designed in order to minimize the risk of uh, ovarian cancer or choose patients who are at the lowest risk of uh, ovarian cancer and have the maximum benefit from retention of the ovaries. So if in fact the findings of this study show that the salpingectomy alone arm was good, then those patients would have gained from choosing that option along the way. Okay. And then there is the larger benefit. We're at a point where this is the logical next thing that we have to evaluate to minimize the impact of our recommendations on women's lives. So they would be contributing to our understanding and management of the risk tremendously by participating in this study. 
Once again, the local phone number, if people are interested, is 315-464-8200, and that goes to the Upstate Cancer Center. My guest has been Dr. Rinki Agarwal. She's an Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Medical Director of the Upstate Cancer Center's Gynecologic Oncology Program, as well as the Director of the Upstate Cancer Center's Genetics Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. How did a chemist get involved with diabetes research? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Many of the people who have type 2 diabetes take medication that causes nausea, vomiting, and other side effects. A chemist at Syracuse University is developing a drug that would control blood sugar without the side effects. Robert Doyle is a chemistry professor at SU and also an adjunct assistant professor at Upstate. Thank you for making time, Professor Doyle. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Before I ask you about your work, how did a chemist get involved in diabetes research? Oh, it's a great question. So my interest has always been in making things, not surprisingly, as a chemist. And the, I guess you could say, epidemic of type 2 diabetes and comorbid obesity, so these sort of diseases go hand in hand, was really evident as a chemist who was coming up. The pharmaceutical industry that I'm involved with or, or would aspire to be involved with were very driven at, by looking at ways, new ways to control blood glucose because of this huge problem that we were seeing worldwide. So let me ask you, because diabetes is a little complex to try to understand if you're not involved in the work that you're involved with. Can you give us a, a good layman's definition of glycemic control? Sure. In essence, it means not having glucose levels in your blood that's too high and not having glucose levels in your blood that's too low. It really has to be uh, blood glucose that's in that Goldilocks zone, not, not too cold, not too high, not too low, right in that space between about 60 and 125. They're the sort of magic numbers. So there's a lot of existing medications already on the market for controlling blood sugar and try to get into that sweet spot. But how do those work and, and why are they not doing everything that you would like them to do? First of all, I will start by saying they are wonderful drugs. And for the majority of patients who will take them, absolutely life-affirming, life-altering in all the right ways. Um, so they can work by in increasing insulin secretion from your pancreas. So your pancreas is the organ that is responsible for controlling your blood glucose levels, keeping them at just the right level. And they will work to increase that insulin level, these drugs to increase these insulin levels so as to facilitate glucose uptake into your cells where it needs to be. So the big challenge with glucose dysregulation per glycemic control is the fact that you could be awash in glucose in your blood. And in fact, the classic type 2 uh, diabetes patient will have very high levels of glucose, but their cells are starving for glucose. So the problem is they're like a teenager trying to get into a club. There's a bouncer in the way who says no. And if you're not on the list, you don't get in and you need the insulin pass to get you through the door. And so these drugs can work to elevate that amount of insulin in patients who require that additional boost to help get that insulin into the tissues, into their cells across the body. Other ways to do it are simply to upregulate control mechanisms whose job it is to protect these pathways that will either utilize the glucose or again, drive this insulin secretion and glucose uptake in the cells. So they're all playing around, they're all playing around really um, the pancreas and insulin or essentially helping the kidneys to flush glucose out of blood system. So. There's a myriad of different ways to do it. I mean, I don't want to get too technical about it, but there is a myriad of ways to do it. And they're all wonderful. They all work really, really well for the majority of patients. You can even actually just inject straight insulin. But that's only uh, done in type 1 patients who cannot produce insulin directly themselves. The majority of patients with diabetes are type 2. So what about these medications might cause the side effects, the, the nausea, the vomiting, Weight loss. 
Yeah, and these are not my words, the words of the, the physician community. The darlings of current treatment for patients with type 2 diabetes are what are called GLP-1 agonists. And you inject them into your body, so they have to be subcutaneously administered. You have to use a needle or syringe to administer them. And what happens is they go to your pancreas, and in concert with glucose level, they drive insulin secretion from your pancreas. And the really, really clever thing about this is that it models how we do it naturally. And so because it only works when glucose level is high to release insulin, you never have an overproduction of insulin or over-release of insulin, which means it never drops too low either. And so it achieves that wonderful Goldilocks state of bringing down the high, but not bringing it down to achieve the incorrect low. And so it really can bring about a, an excellent, what we call metabolic norm. So something that's more akin to what, let's call it a typical patient would have, or typical person would have in, in day-to-day -day glucose levels. The side effects are a cause of our quirky human physiology. The same receptor or target in the pancreas is actually also found in your lizard brain, in your hind brain, which is the little space between your ears and in the middle. But in that case, it doesn't work to release insulin because your brain doesn't release insulin. What it does in that case is it triggers appetite depression and nausea and in a lot of cases, vomiting. So it goes to a part of your brain, which is designed to test essentially your body for poisons or drugs or unknown substances with a view to getting them out of your system if you need to. So it's an evolutionarily protective mechanism. These drugs go to your pancreas that are wonderful, but they also end up in the hindbrain and trigger these side effects by hitting the same receptors that are located in these two very distinct places. Pancreas, glucose control, brain, weight loss, nausea, vomiting. So what was your idea for avoiding the side effects? Was it to avoid going to the brain at all? Exactly. So if we could keep it out of the brain, particularly the hindbrain, you would get all of the peripheral effects, the pancreas effects, but you wouldn't get any of the brain effects. That was the theory. That was the hypothesis that we put forward. Yep. Well, do I understand correctly? Your new drug is a combination of two molecules? It is. It's what we call a conjugate. Yep. So what can you tell me about each of these molecules? The idea, I guess, it was born of the fact that I was studying vitamin B12. This comes back full circle. And I was looking to see, as a medicinal chemist, where the vitamin B12 pathway actively transports vitamin B12. And what I noticed using radioactive, radio-labeled vitamin B12 was that it really did not go to the brain at all. But it would still happily go to the kidneys, the pancreas, the liver, etc. And so I thought if we put these GLP-1 drugs on the back, if you will, of a vitamin B12 or vitamin B12 type compound, it might be like putting it on a specific bus or a specific airplane and saying, you only fly this route, so I'll only take you to those locations. So if you're on the number 16 bus to downtown Syracuse, you get to go there. But if you're on the 16 bus and you want to go to Binghamton, you're on the wrong bus. And so we said no bus to the brain, only on the vitamin B12 route. And as a consequence, some of it still goes to the pancreas and obviously it's dose dependent. And so we work to figure out how much we need to maintain a relevant level to trigger a glucose control, but no brain entry. And as soon as we did that, we saw no nausea, no vomiting, no weight loss, but nice maintained glycemic control. So does your drug have a name yet? Uh, no, we call it coronated. We call the technology coronation because vitamin B12 has a beautiful red color. It has this, what we call a coron ring. So coronation is the obvious sort of term from this. So the drugs in this family are called glutides. So I guess we could call it coroglutide if we take it that far, but certainly we have a, just a generic internal, you know, moniker for it right now. Why was it tested in the musk shrew? So, yes, yeah, very unusual. So the musk shrew, first and foremost, looks like a rodent. It looks like a rat or a mouse, but it's actually a mammal. And 
In fact, it used to be before the advent of more complex sequencing and DNA analysis, it used to be ranked as a pseudo primate. So it was originally considered to be a really small creature related to a monkey. So in other words, we're primates, very, very higher order evolutionary species, but it can do something as well that a, a rat and a mouse cannot do. They cannot vomit. So you can't actually do emetic studies or vomiting studies. My little boy calls it barf studies. And he likes to say, did you do more barfing studies today, dad? To do it, you need a species that can truly vomit. And that's usually done in dogs. But here we have a small rodent-like higher order mammalian model that can vomit that has the exact same pathway, the vitamin B12 pathway that a human does. So in addition to rats and mice and guinea pigs, et cetera, not having the ability to vomit, they also don't have the same human vitamin B12 pathway. So they end up being completely incorrect as a model species for us to be able to do the work. So this musk shrew was perfect for what you needed. We had to prove it. We actually had to study the vitamin B pathway in the shrew because it wasn't known and confirm it actually had the human setup, and which we did. And then my collaborators at Penn, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, they are experts. In fact, they're one of only two colonies in the entire world. The other is in Hong Kong that actually utilize musk shrews in this way. So the drug proved itself in the musk shrew. Yes, and actually it did better than an actual FDA-approved drug that's currently on the market. Better in terms of its lifespan and its glycemic control. And unlike that drug, it did not cause vomiting or weight loss. So what is the next step after you finish looking at how this performs in this species? What do you do after that? Well, because the data was so good, we actually did two major things. We wrote an R01, which is the primary mode of acquiring health funding in the United States through the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And first submission, thankfully, they liked it enough to give us $3.4 million to pursue it over the next four years, which actually just began this past July, 2021. And we also at the same time, and by we, I mean myself and my two collaborators at Penn, professors Matt Hayes and Bart DeYoung, we spun out a company. So we started a company called Cantius Therapeutics. And one of our lead pipeline drugs now will be this coraglutide, as you've now inspired me to name it. Um, and so we will now, over the next 18 months, begin the process of acquiring the data we need to get what's called an IND or an investigative new drug application to the FDA. So it is something that we're actually very excited about. And we have really, really good, interesting lawyers and business people who've come on board now at Cantius, whose job it will be to guide the scientists who don't know the business and legal aspects of drug development through the next 18 months into this process. And if, if the science holds up, that's where we should be in about 18 months. So this 18-month period, at the end of that period, is that when this may be tested in humans? Yes. At that point, you can go into a phase one safety study just to make sure that it's tolerated uh, and tolerated at doses that you will clinically use. And then our idea and the, the main focus for our work, to go back to my earlier comment that these are wonderful medications, the darling of research, they do have a limitation in that while a lot of type two patients do benefit from losing weight, that is absolutely true. Some patients who have a comorbid disease like cystic fibrosis or HIV or cancer who are also type 2 diabetic, they cannot see their nutritional status suffer any further. And so what you would like is to be able to offer them another tool in the toolbox to give them glycemic control, but without affecting their nutritional status. They want the glucose control. They do not want the weight loss aspects. And of course, that would also apply to lean type 2 diabetic patients. So this is more of a, a forgotten small percentage, if you will, that aren't able to benefit from these really wonderful drugs that would now be able to benefit from them. And we're focusing right now, particularly on patients with cystic fibrosis who also this have type 2 diabetes. And that is usually the case with patients with cystic fibrosis. They will eventually develop diabetes, unfortunately. This is very interesting. I appreciate you sharing this information with us. Sure.
My guest has been Professor Robert Doyle. He's a professor of chemistry at Syracuse University and an adjunct assistant professor at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, understanding graft versus host disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Graft versus host disease is a rare condition that may develop after a person undergoes a bone marrow or stem cell transplant. A scientist in microbiology and immunology at Upstate has done considerable research on this condition, and he's agreed to tell us about it. My guest is Dr. Mobin Karimi. He's an assistant professor at Upstate, and I thank you for making time for this interview. Thank you for having me. Now, is graft-versus-host disease only a threat to people who had bone marrow or stem cell transplants, or could people who've received an organ transplant or blood transfusion also be at risk? The graft-versus-host disease can be at risk in both. Um, people who received uh, bone marrow with the stem cells and mature T cells, and it also can be uh, a risk with the receiving uh, solid organ. The difference is that when a patient receives uh, stem cell, they also have to receive some mature T cell. So this mature T cell, what they do is they help the engraftment. But in the case of solid organ transplant, what happened is that the patient own T cells can reject the transplant and can cause graft host disease. I see. Well, tell us about this condition. What, what are the main symptoms of graft-versus-host and why is it a danger? So graft-versus-host disease is one of the high rate of mortality after cancer. Uh, so a lot of time it happens is when a patient go under chemotherapy and radiation. So we have to give them some mature T cells and stem cells to regenerate their immune system. And in order for the stem cells to engraft, those T cells help the engraftment. And those T cells also get rid of the minimal residual cancer cell that's been hiding anywhere. So it's a great way to get rid of the cancer. But what happened is that within the first 100 days of a human, those donor T cells, if they are mismatched, they can proliferate, they, they, they produce this molecule called cytokines, and they're targeting the cancer cells, but they're also targeting the normal cells. So that's what constitutes a graft versus host disease. And a graft versus host disease, anywhere between 20% to 70% of the population might die from this condition. Uh, so historically, people think of graft versus host disease as a trading one disease for another disease. So there's a lot of possibility that the patient might not die from cancer but they might die from graft-versus-host disease. So the first symptom in the human is has a very bad skin rush, gastrointestinal system get damaged significantly. People develop diarrhea and that diarrhea become bloody diarrhea, liver get damaged, skin gets significantly damaged, eye get damaged, and if not treated, a patient might die from this. So it, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but so the person who's receiving the transplant, if this develops, their body is rejecting the transplant or not happy with it in some way? So what happened is the donor T cells that we um, injected with the stem cells in order to engraft the stem cells, because if you don't give them the stem cell, the patient might die from the, from the radiation and chemotherapy. So those donor T cells proliferate so highly, and they are the one they're targeting the patient because those donor T cells are not developed in the patient body. So they consider patient as a foreign entity and they're targeting it. So if they were developed in the same time as uh, they were related by the genetic relations, they might not get rejected. But since they are totally different from each other, there's a greater chance that the donor cells might cause the graft-versus-host disease. Can you walk us through how graft-versus-host is, is treated today? 
So Graffos's host disease is based on the condition it is uh, acute Graffos's host disease or chronic Graffos disease. Uh, but the general treatment is the immunosuppressive drug. So what happened is that when a patient developed Graffos's host disease, a physician treat them with any immunosuppressive drug. What happened in that case is that that patient will always be on those immunosuppressive drug. And they cannot be vaccinated against viruses like uh, flu or uh, COVID or any other things. The patient could simply die from bacterial infection. They cannot clear uh, bacterial infection. The greater chance of the tumor will relapse right away because T cells cannot fight them back, the minimal residual. So it is a great idea to modulate T cells signaling to the point where you achieve the immunosuppressive part where you the cells do not produce cytokines, but in the same time, they can clear tumor and they can also clear viral infection. How common is graft versus host among people who have a transplant? The range is pretty wide, anywhere between 20% to 75%. It's based on the genetic makeup of the donor and the recipient, how far they are from each other. So are physicians able to predict who will develop graft-versus-host? There's a lot of literature that the physician can uh, predict the graft-versus-host disease, but those are not uh, prominent signs that for guarantee that this will be whether GVHD or not GVHD. What happened is in the mouse model, we can generate different mouse, we can cure GVHD, we can target the cancer, but when it's come to the patient, it's it's much more than that. So the prediction, a lot of work has been done on the, to recognize in the prediction. Other things that the, the doctor is exploring the possibility that what they do is they take some stem cells, stem cells alone and transplant it from the donor to the recipient and let it grow in the recipient body. And then with the hope that they might not reject the organ or they might not reject the cell transplanted. But it's a big problem. Uh, and it's uh, also a lot of people can ask questions, why don't they use patient own cells? Are a lot of people, why don't they lose their, like if you have a twin sister, twin brother, uh, from mom to the patient, uh, from dad to the patient, or uh, from children, because they're relatively close related. So why we don't do that? Uh, um, the problem with that case is that if a, if a cancer has happened in the bone marrow cells or the cancer is really uh, like CML, AML, that happen in the myeloid cells in the bone marrow. So if you transplant them T cells or stem cells from the closest relative, the greater chance that they will relapse. And the time they relapse, when the cancer come back, it is much worse than the first time. And I it's see. much aggressive. So what happened is that if you use it from the less relative, from the less mismatch to the patient, they do not relapse the cancer, but they develop GVHD. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about graft versus host disease with Dr. Mobin Karimi. He's an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. So tell us about what you are focused on in your research. Have you and your colleagues found a way to eliminate graft versus host? So our lab setup is that we, we study signaling, T-cell signaling and NK-cell signaling, and we use graft versus host disease as a readout for those. For example, T-cells are the one that cause a disease versus host disease, but the same T cells are required to get rid of the tumor. So if we can modulate the signaling that they will not cause versus host disease, but they can target versus tumor or versus leukemia. So that is the goal of the, the research is to, how can we modulate this pathway for a T cell to do one thing, but not the other. And this has been pretty challenging throughout time because you need the same T cells for engraftment you, to, to secure the engraftment of stem cells. You need the same T cell that get rid of the tumor cells, but the same T cells also cause graft versus host disease. 
so how do you make a T cells to do one thing and not do another thing? That is our research focus on. So that's what you're focused mostly on. Now, yes. I, I understand your team has developed a peptide to inhibit some of this. So previously, many people have shown that if you can modulate T cell signaling, uh, that will cause less disease. So we have published previously, and other people have published that there is a molecule called ITK. ITK is a kinase that is required for T cell robust response against virus, against antigen, against any foreign things. So if we can attenuate the TCR signaling, we might not cause graft-versus host disease. So the issue was, where do we target T-cell signaling? So if we can target it downstream, some other signaling might compensate for the, the signaling molecule that we target. But if we target it upstream, it might make the T-cells totally dysfunction. It might not do anything. So we've been working on this molecule called ITK. So if we get rid of ITK, if we remove the ITK, then the T cells do not cause the cytokine storm, which cause Graf-Rosset's host disease, but they upregulate other molecules, and those are the ones that cause uh, anti-tumor response. So it's not as simple as just getting rid of ITK. You just can't entirely get rid of, get rid of it. So, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to look at, and ITK is a, is a kinase. So if you take 100 kinases, they will all look the same. One of the problem is that developing uh, uh, drugs or developing small molecules or developing anything against uh, uh, either T cell mediated diseases could be autoimmunity, could be Graf-Rosset's host disease, could be any, any possible thing. What happened is that when you target one kinase, by default, you will target another kinases. So what we looked at is that, okay, we need to target ITK, but what is the signaling that activates ITK? So what we looked at, it, there, is a, there is a molecule called SLIP76. SLIP76 is a molecule on the top of ITK. So when we removed the SLIP76, we didn't see any T cells in the mice. The mice do not make T cells and the mice do not make NK cells. So SLIP76 has three important tyrosine. Tyrosine is a signaling protein that, that connect adapter molecule with the kinases. So what we did is we mutated each one of them in the mouse. So we switch tyrosine for another molecule. And when we target the, the SLIP76 at the position 145, the ITK was not phosphorylated. Basically, the signal was the same. And those mice can clear LCMV infection, they can clear virus, they can clear tumor, they can do anything, but they don't cause uh, autoimmunity, they don't cause Graf-Rosset's host disease. So what we did is we tweaked the system enough that they will not cause autoimmune response, or they will not develop autoimmunity or Graf-Rosset's host disease, but in the same time, they will be able to get rid of virus uh, virus infection and they can get rid of the tumor. So the most important thing was where do you target this kinases? So we did this in the mouse model and we've proven that also by, we get similar result that we get rid of the ITK itself. If you remove it from the mice, it doesn't do anything. But some report has shown that if you target ITK, uh, those mice cannot uh, clear the virus and cannot clear any other infection. So that's what we, our idea was where to target this. Once we target it, that we were able to achieve the goal. Well, I know the um, basic research that you're working on and doing is really the building blocks toward getting closer to something that would take care of or treat graft versus host. So I appreciate you kind of bringing us into your laboratory today. Thank you. My guest has been Dr. Mobin Karimi. He's an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Dale Shank is the founding editor of the fiction journal Black Ice. Dale's work appears in Acros Review and the University of Portland Review. The poem Apple Tree Time celebrates life, friendship, and aging with both wisdom and grace. Apple Tree Time. A winter morning pruning apple trees with friends is an exercise in aging. We do not hear a clock ticking. We cannot see the trees growing older. Time can be counted as much by the rhythms of branches being cut as by words between us. A winter morning pruning apple trees with friends is an exercise in optimism. As we work our way from Gravenstein to Red Delicious to Northern Spy, cutting the gnarled, the dead, the misshapen limbs, we believe implicitly we will be back in the spring when the trees are in bloom, or at least by fall when the apples are ripe. We tell ourselves these cuts are kind, a requisite for rejuvenation. We tell ourselves time is an alley. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how have the children fared during the pandemic? If you missed any of today's show, or for more information on a variety of health, science, and medical topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music